really discouraged the team to talk about IPO at all. All we talked about in the company was what we called PCR, which now has a different meaning because of COVID. But PCR for us was public company readiness. And we said, hey, we need to be public company ready to the point where I would say about a year before we were actually going public, that became a company priority. Hi, everyone, and welcome to CFO Talks. Today, I'm extremely excited to be speaking with Alan Shim, who was CFO at the app that every modern worker loves using, Slack. Alan joined Slack during its early stages as employee number 20, and more recently served as its CFO for three years. During that time, he played an instrumental role in shaping the company's growth, from building out the finance and operation functions to leading its direct listing, and finally overseeing its acquisition by Salesforce for a record-breaking $27 billion. I'm super excited to have him on the show, and it's also our first in-person recording. Welcome, Alan, and it's great to have you at Aspire's office in Singapore. Would be really keen to understand where you started from, what you did in college, and then take us through from there. Thanks for having me. I'm really happy to be here. For me, and I'm a parent of immigrants, Korean immigrants in the US. Uh, as you can tell from my accent, I'm not local to Singapore. I grew up in Long Island, New York, and went to school at Penn Wharton. And so I got my start in the business side of things. So I did financial services coming out of college for two and a half years or so. But then I moved to California to take my first tech job, Yahoo. That really introduced me to the tech scene and the internet economy. And just what it was like to build companies, which I think is pretty different than analyzing them from a financial perspective. I joined Yahoo in 2005. So it was one of the major internet players at that time. This is really before Google totally dominated search or Facebook really even arrived on the scene. So it's a very different time. And I was very bullish on obviously the internet at that point. But I think for me, Yahoo was already a quite a large company, as you were kind of mentioning. It was about 6,000 employees when I joined. And within a three-year period, it grew to 15,000 employees. That's just one measure of kind of growth. Um, and it was probably too fast, to be honest, for a company of that size. And you could feel the growing pains. And I think what I learned from it, though, was on the one hand, you know, here's what it looks like to operate at scale. But there's also a lot of mistakes I saw being made along the way, or at least improvements I thought that could be easy to achieve if, if it had taken a different approach. And so that was sort of pointing me to the startup scene where I was like, okay, you know, now I've seen it done a different way. Maybe I can do it a way that I think could be done better, albeit at a much smaller scale. And so quickly from there, I, I really got the bug, if you will, and went to my first startup uh, called Yumi, which is a video advertising company. And I joined there as a relatively early employee. It was 30 some odd people then and wanted to experience the journey from that very early stage, what it was like to build something. And thankfully, we were able to take that public in a small cap IPO. After that, I realized, wow, going public was quite difficult. So from there, I then joined Slack. And Slack is really a, a rich journey that can I tell you more about as well. Got it. And you know, when you were doing finance in UPenn, did you know you wanted to get into tech or what, what brought you to tech? I had no real understanding of tech uh, when I was in university. I was in business school and all everyone really thought about was investment banking or consulting or equity research or that kind of thing. And so I chose the path of equity research and spent my kind of put my time in, in New York and in that kind of Wall Street environment. 
And it just so happened that some friends of mine who were ex-bankers, ex-private equity had made this move from New York to California. And you know, one thing led to another where I caught up with one of my friends and an opportunity arose for me to make a similar move to, to Yahoo. And so the rest is kind of history. I, I mean, I think it was just an openness to what was happening there, you know, thinking that I, I could use a change of pace and really a change of culture, a work culture. And so that really happy it worked out. But I did honestly didn't give it that much thought versus being open to change. That's really cool. And I'm, I'm really interested in sort of these transition opportunities that you've been exposed to. And from Yahoo, you went to Yumi. And, and how many years was that? Can you give me a short sort of summary? It sounds like you were there through the IPO as well. So I was at Yahoo for, you know, three and a half, four-ish years. And then I went to Yumi and I was there for five and a half years. Uh, so when I joined, it was quite small. And then, you know, we, we went public and about six or nine months after we went public is when I joined Slack. And I was at Slack for seven and a half years. Uh, and I joined there when it was a 20-person company. So to me, it's actually one of the things I started learning in life was when I was younger, I just would switch jobs. I, or at least I always felt like I had this need to switch jobs because I was never satisfied with the rate I was being promoted at or you know that I wasn't being recognized and given a higher title and pay sooner. And it's funny because you come from, when I came from the financial services world where you know, money was everything, that money was the measure of how you were performing to a corporate world where, you know, the average raise was, you know, 3% or 4%, you know, in a normal year and a bonus, you know, in a good year where you got promoted was kind of 10% just didn't compute for me because of the way I used to think. And now having matured a bit, I've learned so much by actually resisting some of those tendencies on some level growing up from them to, you know, build experience, build relationships, most importantly, these specific environments where I can learn from the right people in the right place. Yeah. And I guess you've been fortunate in those decisions that you've made in the startup world. Not every startup works out, right? But you've managed to stay in for long periods at, at these startups. A bit about Slack, like how did you get that opportunity to join so early? Did you, did you know it was going to be big? What attracted you to, to join? The easiest way to talk about Slack is to understand a little bit more about Yumi. So when I joined Yumi, as I mentioned, it was, I was quite early and kind of saw this early stage of growth where we're effectively kind of just starting to generate revenue and then helping that scale to kind of a few, a couple hundred million in revenue. But along the way, there's a lot of steps to, to take to get to that point, right? And that's probably an understatement. <laughs> but the experience there was very formative for me. And on some level, I, I learned more because I made a lot of mistakes and I was given both the freedom to do that and also was able to quickly adapt from them and learn and see when I had made a you know a bad judgment call. When I got to Slack, or when at least when that came into the picture, you know, you may have been public um, about two or three quarters at that point. And the life of a public company for particularly at that size and scale was very challenging for us. I think we understood what it meant to go public, but not what it meant to be a public company. And, and the analogy I like to share all the time is it's like a wedding is different than marriage, right? Wedding is cool and exciting and fun and marriage is long-term and can be, you know, a lot of challenges as well. A lot of blessings and amazing parts as well, but also it has a lot a share of challenges. And I think uh, we underestimated the marriage element of, of that being a public company. So at that point, I was considering, okay, now not knowing what I know now, can I do this again where I, I'm paired up with a great technology mind and leader and team? and bring my business acumen and experience to do this again. And Stuart and team 
a lot of them were ex-Flickr. So that was the company that Yahoo had bought. And so we actually, our tenures at Yahoo overlapped, although we had not worked together directly. But because of that, our shared network, I was quickly introduced to him. And I met him on a a Monday night at the Slack office. Um, And by Friday afternoon, he had called me, offered me a, a job. And I got my offer letter and signed it on Sunday and gave my two weeks notice and then started. So I was really excited about pairing up with a technology mind and a product mind and also being given a lot of autonomy to do the business parts that I knew well. And, you know, Slack at that point, then I would say benefited from the fact that I was going to make a lot fewer mistakes and maybe more important than fewer was lower magnitude. I I wasn't going to make any really catastrophic things. I knew what to avoid. And on some level that really guided especially my early days at Slack. The people element was a big part of that. The opportunity to put what you had learned into practice was a big part of it. What about the technology and the product itself at that point? Did it excite you? What stage was it in at that point? You were asking, you made a comment earlier about whether I knew the stock was going to be big. And I I would definitely be lying to everyone here if I said I had any idea of how it was going to play out. But a couple of things were very validating and and comforting in the beginning. You know, one, you know, Stuart and our shared network, I think that brings a lot of trust into the system. Um, Even if we didn't work together directly, just in terms of reputation, working styles. I had friends who were, again, similar shared network, who are considering, you know, who who are looking at it from an investment perspective and saying, this is actually a very compelling company. And then my wife actually used Slack in its very early stages when it was not even in GA release because her company, Walmart Labs, was an early, we'll call it beta tester of of the product. And she said, you know, we use a lot of these products and this one I feel is very compelling. I said, wow, great, because I had never used the product at that point. At the end of the day, I wanted to change the industry I was working in. So this was software. This was SaaS, you know, in 2014, which was, you know, still pretty early for that. And working with someone who I just really respected from a product and technology point of view, right? Where I felt like they were excellent at those things. And that's not my specialty by any means, but I knew I was excellent at what I did. And there was this willingness to partner and and collaborate and work together on that. So that's really, really big, right? Because, you know, if you get the industry right, that's a, that's a huge piece of it. And then, you know, you look at the kind of the team and then I look at the role and each of those, once I checked each of those boxes, I was like, okay, this really makes a lot of sense for me. There must be something to, to mention here as well. Choosing to go into early stage company at that point is not something that everyone would do, right? Tell us a little bit more about the early stages. So you join us, employee number 20. Um, what was the team at that point? You know, what were the different functions? How, how was it like and what did you build? I, th- I think you have a better appreciation than most because I d- usually don't get this question. You know, when I joined Yumi, it was this introduction to the early stage of a startup. Now, it's not, it's still different to when you're, you know, say three people versus 30 people, but 30 people is still pretty early. A lot of our team was in India and that kind of thing. So there is a lot of work that has to be done, but that's not fit into anyone's job description, right? A lot of it is office work, administrative especially in a role like mine. And so it became a much more catch-all, you know, when something needed to get done that it fell to me. Um, and so I was very involved with, you know, on the more interesting side of things, like how sales was going to get built up, how marketing was going to be uh, built up, um, how we were structuring some of our contracts. 
uh, how some of our, uh, at the time, ad operations teams were being worked on. You know, the office has sufficient supplies. It's getting cleaned properly. We've got the right admin staff. And, you know, and so, you know, those are the things that people hear about. And they're like, oh, okay, that's, I can deal with that. But it's very humbling, very humbling to have nobody else to, to turn to for that. When Stuart and team approached me about Slack, I said, how big is it? They said, well, they just released the product. So it's basically starting off on revenue although they've got a great start here and they're growing very quickly and it's 20 people. I said, Oh my God, it's smaller than Yumi was. So I knew I would have to relive all of that early kind of pain, but I also appreciated the fact that this was a very unique opportunity with this company, with this team, with this industry that, I, you know, all the things that were, I was looking for and it resonated for me and getting the validation from the people that I trusted so I said, okay, listen, I can, I know what's in store. So I'm going in eyes wide open um, and I can handle that. And I know that's not going to be forever, especially the way this, this thing is growing. And I know that also if I get in here early, I can make decisions that will help guide the direction and save us a lot of pain in the future. Um, and so that was, you know, that was very exciting for me. And yes, you know, I have my story of where, you know, I did take the trash out and, you know, in San Francisco, you can get different size trash cans. So I'm calling the people and making sure we've got the right size trash can and making sure we've got the right amount of Coca-Cola in the office and whatever else is needed. But thankfully that, you know, eventually I was able to hire people <laughs> to help me with some of those things. I guess uh, Coca-Cola in the office is important. This yeah. is a fuel. <laughs> I guess there's a long journey from that point. What are some of the significant, you know, milestones in that journey? You know, was it sort of building out your your team? Was it get, getting really involved in commercial side of things? So in the beginning, uh, especially, you know, when I joined, there was, you know, Stuart and Cal. Cal was our CTO and another co-founder. And then they were effectively in charge of, well, I'll just call R&D in, in the big broadest sense. And then there was uh, Ali who was head of uh, what we called customer experience, which was like customer support. And then, you know, there's a, there were on the leadership side, then there was me. So if you think about the areas that I described, that they covered, I basically covered everything else, at least in some interim capacity. And so I was looking at, you know, for example, sales and account management and this movement to sales and really enterprise sales was a, was a big one for, for Slack. You know, we had been, and we continued to be, a very self-service, organically driven viral adoption type of product. And at the same time, we had large corporate customers asking for a different set of features and considerations and way of buying the product even than our self-service customers of, let's say, you know, SMBs of 10 to 50, 50 employees or in that size range. That was a big transition. And so helping support the company through that by working with Stuart around, well, when is the right time to supplement the leadership team in some of these areas? How do we need to operate the company differently? How do we need to invest differently around some of the product areas? And how would that affect the roadmap and priorities that we need to address? It was an ongoing and you know, pretty significant debate uh, for some time. But I think at some point, you know, we were able to make a decision and move in a direction to support the enterprise. Uh, and that became a big growth engine uh, for the company, especially later on. And, and I think that was, you know, it's just like one of those kind of key moments where I realized that was a lot of years in the making and having my sort of hand in a lot of different areas 
gave me a lot of perspective to think about how we could also you know invest in that for the for the organization interesting and yeah i mean that's definitely quite a nuanced topic deciding where to draw that line, when to call it. And like you said, lots of resources that you have to put in, in process and it doesn't happen overnight as well. As you transitioned more and more, I guess, towards the Slack CFO, at that point, how did you look at what your responsibility was? Did it change from the early days? Uh, was it more specialized given that you brought on other leaders? And how would you break down that responsibility into buckets? That's like a five-part question. So I will handle the first couple and then we'll see if we you want to just follow up on anything in particular. It's important to, as you mentioned, to highlight, I didn't join Slack as a CFO. And there's two comments on that. One, a 20-person company with just starting on revenue doesn't need a CFO. Okay, I think that's important to call out. Two is... I wasn't ready to be CFO. Although if you had asked me in 2014 whether I thought I was ready to be CFO, I would probably tell you I was. And that in and of itself is a, a whole journey that I, I, on some one level basically happened concurrently with the growth of the company. As you mentioned, in 2018, I did become officially the CFO. And then we took the company public in June of 2019. So when I look at what has changed, I, I will maybe take a step back and think about Okay, well, what is the lead finance slash business person doing in the early days? Well, in the beginning, things that are kind of fun topics and buying supplies and all that, that's, you know, you're really just doing pretty um, simple jobs. There's there's just a lot of them to do and there isn't capacity to do them. So I was just effectively an IC, right? An individual contributor doing the tasks that were given to me. But quickly, I had to build out a team, hire people, build out at least the initial scaffoldings of other organizations that weren't necessarily going to be my specific domain. So that means I needed to become more of a people manager. And I, and I separate that from, you know, sort of the next natural step in evolution in the way we look at leadership. So you've got ICs, you've got people who do things, then you've got managers who are people who are responsible for a collection of doers effectively, but they're still, their main responsibility is the cumulative task before them, right? Uh, but it's still a very different job than doing it itself, right? You're doing one-on-ones, you are, you know, thinking more about how to organize and help prioritize and triage things and communicate up and down, etc. So it's a very different job than I see. And then lastly, I would say is leadership. So if you go from IC to manager to kind of leader, I, I think the main point I want people to hear from that is it's a different job. You know, it's not just, oh, I am senior manager two, then I become senior manager three and senior manager three equals CXO. That's a common way of people thinking about it, but maybe no one really articulates it that way. You know, it's, it's as if you go to a performance review and you're like, okay, great. You did a great job. Now you're the CXO of this, of your role. And it doesn't make any sense, right? If you, when you hear it that way, a lot of us think, at least I thought that way. And when I look now at that distinction, it took a lot of uh, feedback, took a lot of coaching. Um, and a lot of you know people just revisiting my assumptions around what I thought I was already doing and what I thought that that actually you know translated to in terms of role. So it's a long way of saying the the CFO role itself was first a self realization around what I was and what I was not ready to do, and then secondly what that job meant inside of the company. So now I wasn't just doing one on ones. Now actually the question I had to answer is. Why should people follow me? What am I doing that inspires and gives you know, people motivation and clarity to do this job beyond just the tasks that they have, right? And 
that is a much higher order than being a great manager. Um, and so I think that's the part that really dovetails with when I think about, okay, well, what is the journey to CFO? It's really this journey of leadership, right? How did I concurrently go through those steps without even realizing it? No, I really like that. It's, it's true. I think most people may think that it's just the next natural order. It's not really, right? Like there are more layers to it. One you mentioned was leadership, right? Inspiring others to follow you, making the mission clear. Would you also say there's a part of being at the front line of the company, the, the responsibility to then, you know, figure out what's next, right? How do we see it? There's a concept that they call first team. Who do you look at as the actual team that you are working with, uh, you know, in, in the most, in the highest priority order? And I would say the biggest distinction for call it executive level and, and leadership level but specifically at the executive leadership level, like we're talking about here, the biggest marker I feel like if people got it right is that their first team shifts from just their functional team to the other executives. That's hard for people to hear because I think all we have known is, well, you know, kind of take care of my own, make sure that, you know, I've got a specialty skill and therefore, but especially in a CFO role, you're not just CFO of the finance team, you're CFO of the company. And you're responsible for the capital of the company and the capital allocation of the company and how all of those are getting the appropriate level of investment or not that reflect the company's priorities. And so now I have to be not just great, me a great manager with my VP group. No, it's much more about how am I working with the chief revenue officer, chief marketing officer, chief product officer, and so on and so forth, right? To make sure the CEO, to make sure that we are collectively as you said, in the front, driving the company forward, not just an individual uh, team or department. Curious to know what was your cadence there, right? With this first team, this executive team, who are the main stakeholders that you interact with? The number one tool I use to help work that out is my calendar. But let me, let me use it in a reverse example to kind of illustrate the point. Give me anyone's calendar in your organization, and I can almost within, you know, you look at three months worth of kind of meetings and such, I can, I can almost guess probably within 95% accuracy what their role is, what their level is. And if I'm wrong, well, there's probably a conversation there, maybe on both sides. But the point I'm trying to make there is the time should reflect the priority of, of that individual. For the first team stuff, my calendar as a CFO is different than my calendar as a VP of finance. My calendar as a CFO now has a lot more all hands meetings. It's got uh, a lot more cross-functional things I'm sitting in on to make sure that, you know, I'm sitting on sales, sales things. I've got one-on-ones with the sales leader, one-on-ones with, with the marketing leader and, and marketing lead. I'm understanding implications of things to the roadmap that I need to understand. I need to sit with customers to get their feedback. I'm not only doing things that have finance or accounting labeled to them, right? If anything, I have quite few of that because I would expect my leadership team to handle that. So I, of course, I have my one-on-ones with those groups, my kind of key lieutenants in the organization, but that's different. And I'm also spending time with my own, you know, doing all hands means for my own organization to make sure that I'm being clear about, well, what's unique about the way the Slack is called the GNA organization is doing what we're doing in the context of the overall Slack organization. And then we also had a group of senior leaders, we called it, create content and time for them so that they could also ask us questions and challenge that way, when they got questions from their team, it was a unified front. So when you look at that and, I, and you look at that calendar, you would say, 
that person is an executive in the company versus, let's say, the most senior finance leader. A really interesting calendar view, but I, I think it makes a lot of sense. You know, in terms of the execs that you you mentioned, I mean, I do get a, a very clear sense of the other functional execs that you interact with, right? So be it commercial or product, what about with the CEO? How does that relationship work, right? CFO to CEO? Hopefully, uh, you know, went without saying, but the meeting that was always on there for me was with uh, having one-on-ones with the CEO. In fact, for different parts of the time I was at Slack, I had multiple one-on-ones in a given week with Stuart. And it was really important from an alignment perspective. Sometimes I will offer to folks the way to judge if your CFO is doing a good job is to go to their CEO and say, hey, on a scale of one to 10, you know, one being the least, 10 being the most, how much do you trust this person, this other person, your CFO? And if you're not saying at least, I'll call it eight and a half, that relationship will eventually fail. I also had the benefit, I think fairly unique benefit of knowing Stuart from the early days. So I wasn't a hired gun or however you want to characterize it. Someone just sort of came from the outside and, you know, try to change things up. I was very much an insider from the beginning, but I did have a, on some level, outsider perspective, because especially as we wanted to become a public company, there were areas that we needed to, to change and adapt and evolve among them, like enterprise sales, for example. And I had the, I would say the good fortune of, I think I asked Stuart this very question. He said 9.5 because 10 feels like that's not right. Cause that's, that would be, that would be perfect. Uh, and I said, yeah, I, I'm also 9.5 because sometimes you kind of piss me off. So I think that element is built different in different ways, right? Because, you know, some people, they go for walks together. They, they spend time together. They go for drinks together. Some people don't drink. So then they do other things. So I think making sure that that time is there, but also that there is a understanding. I'm not here to serve you, meaning CFO is not here to serve the CEO. On some level, yes, you're my boss, but I'm here to promote the needs of the company. Now, that seems like I'm, I'm trying to make, you know, kind of split hairs a bit, but it's important to, to have a different perspective and important, especially as you become a public company, because you're now also representing all these other shareholders. That to me is really the hallmark of, of a strong CEO, CFO relationship is that trust and that ability to challenge and to create through some of that friction and tension. And Stuart always say this, like when trust is high, communication can be low. But when trust is low, communication is high. So it's funny because people will say, and you can think about this, when you really trust someone, the amount of times you actually need to check in with them or the nature of the check-ins is very efficient. It's like, boom, boom, boom. Oh, I know what you're saying. Okay, boom. Oh, you said this is a problem, but I trust you. You're going to deal with it and come back to me and give me the update. But when it's low, you're like, we're having another one-on-one. Get on the calendar or we're sitting on this. We're going to spend the next three hours working through this. That's a terrible waste of time. Something to think about as you, you know, you want to give each other feedback around how is this working? A couple of times now we've sort of mentioned the, the IPO piece, right? Can you take us through that a little bit? So I always have to put in a plug for the team. I joined in March of 2014. So we'd just gone GA the month prior. June 2019, we were already trading on the New York Stock Exchange. So just over five years, not just having an S1 out there and saying we might go public, we're already trading five years from that in a hyper growth environment. It's one of the ways to, to think about, wow, we did a lot in a short amount of time in a pretty crazy environment, albeit favorable capital environment. The road to IPO, if you will, and then we were actually also fortunate to do a the direct listing route, which was without raising new primary capital and sort of the second company after Spotify to do that. So a different listing itself as well. But the journey there was many years, right? And I'm not just talking about, um, you know, obviously the, the 
lifespan of the company. I'm specifically talking about, we were made a very concerted, deliberate effort to prepare for the marriage and not the wedding. Really discouraged the team to talk about IPO at all. All we talked about in the company was what we called PCR, which now has a different meaning because of COVID. But PCR for us was public company readiness. And we said, hey, we need to be public company ready to the point where I would say about a year before we were actually going public, that became a company priority. Okay, what does public company readiness look like for me? Because it wasn't just about getting all the financial stuff in order. We had to be able to run with a rhythm and a predictability uh, and a schedule really was non-negotiable. So there was a lot of elements of that from your corporate governance and the formation of your board and the committees and how those were handled to the investor relations function, to your security and compliance and, um, and all of those, we'll call them control environments that you have in your company, uh, obviously to the finance team themselves, to the systems that were generating all that. So each of those was a dedicated track and really was a cross-functional effort too. This is where having gone through the prior experience was hugely valuable for me because the culture that I, I was trying to promote in the company early on was, this is where we're going. That's why we're taking these steps today. And we're not just trying to fix things for the moment. We're going to build some things, some things we're going to make, take the short, shorter route and that will be you know, shorter, faster. But then a year or two from now, we're going to have to revisit this. And giving that people that clarity of what was coming was really, really valuable because there were a lot of pain points along the way, regardless of making the right decision or not. It doesn't mean it's painless. It just means that it's not a huge waste of time. And so that, that part really, especially I would say the, the finance and accounting and the GNA organizations, they really came together, IT as an example, really came together to get us to the point where we could function well as a public company beyond the direct listing itself. I, I can see sort of that different perspective uh, of someone who has done it before, seen the marriage, kind of share with everyone who's heading there what we need to do or what trade-offs we're making if we need to do something quick today. Certainly lots for us to learn from as well. You had a happy marriage. <laughs> Slack later on ended up being acquired. Were, were you heavily involved in that? Or as a company, we were in a healthy place because everyone was on board. And it wasn't a, a finance specific initiative. And so that's why it was about being a public company together. The acquisition is a, you know, it kind of, it's a, a very unique story, I would say, because it happened in the middle of COVID, you know, it was announced in December of 2020. So what was it, six or seven, well, eight or nine months in uh, to COVID at that point, or at least what we knew was COVID. <laughs> so everyone was working remotely. So this was, you know, I think the second largest software deal ever done completely remotely without any physical meetings, <laughs> which is sort of mind-blowing yeah. if you think about the scale and the magnitude of what we're talking about. You know, Stuart was working with Brett Taylor at the time, who was the, one of the senior leaders at, at Salesforce, and you know, really came up with this vision of how sort of the combined forces and strengths of the respective organizations would lead to a more powerful combination. And I really believe that. I think that continues to play out today in terms of um, the really the expertise of Slack's uh, product and c consumer and user kind of understanding with the strong go-to-market capabilities of Salesforce um, is really continuing to play out. And my involvement there was more to make sure that this happened, right? At that point, um, this is one of those things where it, it's really 
how founders and how you know the the early leaders, if they don't believe in the combined vision, then they won't transact on this kind of thing. Um, Stewart wouldn't have sold. We look at that and we look at the combined vision. That's really what brought this thing together. And then ultimately, you know, around the there are the details, if you will, around the the price and the structure of the deal and whatnot. And, and that all got worked out over time. And then it was a pretty you know, intensive due diligence process, uh, process working with regulators, uh, again, all remotely, um, with legal, with different compliance matters. And we were able to get that done. And so that deal officially, officially was closed in July of 2021. And that was right around the time that I moved to Singapore. Cool. And maybe bringing things a little closer to home and to now, You've made this move to Singapore. You're doing a little bit of work within the startup space here as well, whether it's uh, from an investment angle or from a coaching angle. Would you tell us a little bit more about that transition as well? Like, you know, why you came here and what you're looking or what, what keeps you busy these days? Why I came here, I will keep fairly brief. Um, a lot of it is a function of the timing. So as Slack was completing the sale to Salesforce, it presented a natural transition point for me. And I was alluding to earlier, you know, I spoke to my wife about potentially moving abroad as a transition, as a way to, you know, make, take advantage of that transition. She was open to it. And, you know, in the world of COVID, in a world where we were looking for an English speaking country that we thought was going to be good for our family and had generally a warmer climate, you really only had Singapore, um, to be honest. And that would let us in because we were able to take advantage of a visa situation that, that worked out for us. So since then, I've been very excited to be here. Uh, it's been wonderful for our family. Um, my kids are really enjoying their school. My wife is very happy here. Um, there are a lot of things about the way the government runs, helps run the society and the social values that people collectively uh, subscribe to, even if you don't always agree with it, a unity that's, that's very important. And then, you know, we're Asian, Asian American. So cuisine and kind of you know, such a big part of your culture, your day to day is, is something that was very favorable for us. Um, but now in terms of the work, um, you know, I've taken, I'm no longer doing full time uh, CFO work. I am helping out on a couple boards. Uh, one is a uh, Credivo, uh, which focuses in Indonesia and the fintech space. And one is an earlier stage company called UNL, and I call them location technology. And then I've been working with Shopback uh, on some coaching and some you know, executive support and, and working with you know, different parts of the organization. So, you know, but at the same time, I'm just generally open to supporting this community in Singapore, meaning the startup and tech community. There's just a lot here where I realize it's very early stage, realize earlier stage than what I've seen. Not many companies have gone public here. And those that have are pretty unique in terms of their offerings. And so how can we raise and support this next generation of leaders and companies so that in three to five years time, you've got a, a really looming set of public companies uh, or companies at scale that can then further bring on the, the generation after that. So I, I feel like that's Singapore and Southeast Asia is really on the cusp of that beginning of that virtuous cycle, but it will still take some time. It's a bit of something that you feel like, I mean, it's driven a bit by passion, right? And, and obviously your expertise in the space. Do you see a lot of potential? Is maybe a question after, I, I guess you've been here for Two years now? Absolutely see a lot of potential. There are some structural factors that I think 
are not clear to me how they will exactly play out. On the one hand, I think what's very interesting is that uh, at least one example I saw is some more of this kind of regional partnership, right? So there's less, for example, on the payment side, less cross-border friction than there used to be. And, that, and that's moving in the right direction. I think now, now you can do like a, the pay now equivalent in all the different currencies uh, in the region. It's like six or seven countries, something like that. That's amazing to see, to be able to really view this as a regional entity. The more things go in that direction and the more ability to treat this as a region, I think it's going to be good for the overall market and TAM opportunity. The more it becomes kind of everyone for themselves and only sort of national champion type of thinking, whether that's in Indo or Thailand or Vietnam, then I think that's a bit more limiting, right? Because I think what this area hasn't really tapped into yet is the culture of sharing, the culture of collaboration outside of your company. I'm not talking about business and commercial partnerships. I'm just talking about shared interests, people with the nature to kind of pay it forward, or to support that what you're doing is is supporting the greater good of this ecosystem. And what I found so far is that it's a bit still too zero sum thinking. When I'm in the Valley, or when I was in the Valley, it was very common for CFOs of other software companies in similar spaces as Slack to be willing to talk to me about things that they were going through and vice versa, if they reached out to me or people on my team and their team. So we could share best practices. I think if I suggested that as something here, people would be very, very skeptical uh, and maybe a bit paranoid around what to share, what is the point of this, what am I going to get out of it, versus the nature of the network is to make the velocity of connection faster. And it doesn't necessarily mean that it's evenly distributed, but in the course of it, it's more of a rising tide lifts all boats dynamic, right? That's what I feel like Singapore, which has such a unique position in this region, can can really aspire to. And then the next part is helping. I think tech startups can really help with this kind of deprogramming I was speaking to because I speak to a lot of investors and and, uh, tech executives here and how people define success and what they're looking for in a job. Now, forget about tech for a second, but just broadly, is still quite narrow. Um, And often influenced by parents and the generation before. And again, all understandable. Like I was saying, I can relate to a lot of that. But how do we accelerate some of that development and openness to to challenge that? Because you've got so many smart, hardworking people, but they're all somewhat trapped by this very narrow set of expectations around what success looks like and can be defined as, uh, which, man, if that is really unleashed and untapped, what is, the po- what is the potential of just this market and then really how that spills over into other markets? Amazing. I, I think that's a really inspiring place to wrap things up. Lots of food for thought. I think we talked about some really great topics. I mean, obviously, thank you so much for sharing about your journey. That was amazingly insightful and how we're looking into untapped the future potential of this region, which I think we definitely happy that folks like you and I guess the Singapore government would be really happy to know they're attracting uh, talented <laughs> to, to kind of boost the ecosystem as a whole. So yeah, but thank you so much for coming down. It was a real pleasure chatting with you and thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me.